Welcome. I'm Anastasia Glova, bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Full and edited versions of our podcasts are available on our website at www.cato.org. Recent events in the Middle East have sparked a public debate about the future of neoconservatism as public policy. In today's podcast, Cato policy analyst Justin Logan weighs in with his own take on the neoconservative policy prescription. Have the neoconservatives lost influence in the administration? Well, it's tough to tell. Uh, It's tough to read the tea leaves without knowing what's being said inside the administration. But it is clear that the Bush administration's responses to both the crisis in North Korea and the, the crisis in Iran seem to indicate that the president doesn't want to rush into uh, another war. So I think the standard here is just going to sort of be fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So I think that he is taking the advice of his neoconservative advisors with some skepticism at this point. Bill Kristol of the Weekly Standard recently called for military action against Iran. I take it you think this would be bad policy? Well, it would be a bad policy for a whole host of reasons. Uh, We have a couple of publications in the pipeline that are going to look at uh, evaluating the options of deterrence versus preventive war in Iran and also looking at the options and and prospects for a diplomatic agreement. But I think it's interesting that Mr. Crystal was on Fox News describing why he believed that military action against Iran is necessary now. And he said that the positive benefit of that would be that it would lead the Iranian people to overthrow the regime in Tehran, which is sort of it seems sort of like a woefully naive estimation. There are a lot of people who think that the problem with Iran is the regime as opposed to its quest for nuclear weapons and that the regime needs to be changed. And that's a perfectly coherent position and one that can be debated. But the prospect that starting to bomb a foreign country would lead its population to overthrow its leadership is sort of woefully naive. We have a host of quotes from people who are not hardliners within the Iranian regime, but in fact relatively pro-Western, pro-liberal people who have said things like what Nobel laureate Shirin Abadi has said, that we will defend our country till the last drop of blood. More than 27% of the Iranian people say that developing an arsenal of nuclear weapons for defense should be the most important long-term goal for the Iranian government. So I think the policy proposal altogether that Mr. Crystal is proposing, such as it is, seems to be rather poorly thought through. And what other policy proposals are neoconservatives offering for the problems in North Korea, Syria, and Iran? It's actually a good question because I think starting with the crisis in North Korea, it became clear that there weren't a lot of policy proposals being offered. I mean, the first response to uh, to the crisis in North Korea was a, a neoconservative scholar, Nicholas Eberstadt, on the pages of the Wall Street Journal, who had a lot of blame for the administration for not handling the North Korea problem correctly and complained uh, that the administration uh, had not followed the proper course of policy, but it wasn't entirely clear what was on on offer as to what the proper policy should be. And I think we see that uh, in a lot of cases now uh, with respect to the lack of policy proposals. Another policy proposal that was offered was that we should use the North Korea crisis to poison our relationship with China. And I'll quote from an article by Dan Blumenthal that said, China is neither our friend nor our partner. We certainly do not need a China policy that pretends otherwise. So it seems in that case that the the proper policy was to take the North Korea problem and create a China problem out of it. And I think that we have a very much similar situation with respect to Iran. 
The neoconservatives are very upset that the administration appears to be making what is admittedly a rather feckless attempt at diplomacy, but it's not entirely clear what the preferred policy is. We have a lot of talk about supporting trade unions and supporting independent press, but as a counterproliferation policy, this is not particularly hopeful. So I think that it's not entirely clear what sort of host of policy options are on offer. And I think that the reason there is not a, a very well-fleshed-out policy platform is because they're frustrated by, I think, the, the lack of resources. If we had an army that was three times the size of the army that we have in a colonial office instead of a State Department, then we could have a very different course of foreign policy. But given the resource constraints with which uh, we operate, it's not entirely clear that we're ready to start bombing and prospectively start a regional war with Iran that has three times the population and four times the landmass of Iraq. So I think that the, a lot of these policy proposals are very poorly fleshed out, very unclear. And I think the reason that is, is because if you run the numbers on the prospective implications of a strike against Iran, they get very quickly out of control. And ironically, this was very much like what happened before the Iraq war. There was a National Security Council memo that was produced very late on in February 2003 that said that if historical precedent were followed, the United States would need 500,000 troops in Iraq to succeed. And it's not clear whether that memo made its way to the president, but it definitely made its way to then National Security Advisor Rice. So I think that by having an honest discussion about the costs and benefits of these policies and looking at the numbers and looking at the costs and looking at the potential casualties, we limit our options. If the U.S. doesn't promote freedom in the Middle East, will there ever be liberal reform? Well, that's another good question, and it's another question on which there's some debate. I'm not as pessimistic about that idea as are some people. However, I think that we're doing ourselves a great disservice by associating freedom and democracy uh, with the foreign policies of the Bush administration. In many countries in the Muslim world, the United States people, United States culture, the concept of freedom and United States democracy is very much admired. And it is United States foreign policy, however, that is very much not admired. There was a survey in 2004 of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Morocco, and the UAE. And respondents were asked whether their opinions were shaped by U.S. policies or by sort of values or culture. And they, they were asked, what, was the, what is the first thought you have when you hear America? And overwhelmingly, the respondents said, unfair foreign policy. So I think that, again, by associating the concepts of, of freedom and democracy with the sort of militarism of the Bush administration, we're actually doing a disservice to the long-term uh, uh, prospect for freedom in the Middle East. I think that by making America a city on a hill and emphasizing those things which people in the Muslim world like, again, even American culture, a lot of people say that, that we're depraved and what have you, but that doesn't even resonate in very much of the polling data. And even the Pentagon's Defense Science Board did a survey in 2004 looking at the strategic communication platform of the United States. And I'll just quote from it directly here. It's, it's very alarming. American direct intervention in the Muslim world has paradoxically elevated the stature of and support for radical Islamists, while diminishing support for the United States to single digits in some Arab societies. Muslims do not, quote, hate our freedom, but rather they hate our policies. And I think that until we come to a recognition that that is the case, 
We're going to continue to harm the long-term prospects for political liberalization in the Middle East. And it's not to say that we should craft our foreign policies with the primary intention of not angering people in any given country. But given the nature of the conflict we're in, we need to be very cognizant about whether we're winning or losing the battle for hearts and minds. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.